0: Hey, good morning. I'm John Cash. I'm the CEO of Your Energy. We are a uranium producer in the great state of Wyoming. We have two flagship properties, uh, Lost Creek, which has been in production for eight years. And we also have a fully permitted project called uh, Shirley Basin, which is fully permitted. And we are excited to get that up and running when the market conditions allow. So uh, it's an exciting time to be in the market. The wind is at our back and uh, looking forward to, to moving the projects forward.
1: Good morning, John. Uh, lo- lo- lovely to meet you. Um, we've been talking with Jeff. In fact, well, I say we talked. We haven't seen him for about a year, but we've always had a fantastic conversation with him about uh, the travails of the geopolitics in this space. Uh, but looking forward to uh, you know, hearing the story, your version of the story here today. So, um, so what's happened there? Jeff has st- stood back and is acting chairman now, and and you kind of stepped up the CEO role. I mean what's happened?
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So in uh, March. Uh, He decided it's time for him to step down and retire, so he's moving toward that direction. He's not retired yet, uh, but I took over as the CEO at that point, and uh, he's going to continue on as the chairman of the board and president uh, through our AGM, which is scheduled for June 2nd. So uh, he's still heavily involved. I talk to them uh, several times every day, and uh, he's been a great mentor and uh, some big shoes for me to fill, that's for sure. And uh, but you know, like I said, it's the winds at my back right now. Uh, it's a great time to be jumping into this position and looking forward to, to trying to fill it as best as I possibly can.
1: Okay, and you, you were uh, VP of Regulatory Affairs before that. So, have you ever been a CEO before? And so, what were you doing in the company um, before you asked to kind of step up to the plate, as it were?
0: Sure. Yeah. No, I've never been a CEO. Uh, first time in that role. But I've been involved in the uranium space for a long time. In fact, I started. Uh, back in 1994 uh, with this uh, in in uranium uh, back when I was in college. In fact, I worked for a couple of the uh, majors at that point doing exploration for gold and uranium. And uh, from that point, moved on and worked at Smith Ranch for a number of years uh, doing regulatory affairs, but also uh, exploration geology, Uh, ultimately got the call from your energy back in 2007 and uh, it was too good of an offer to pass up, so I made the jump to to your energy. I've been with them ever since, a number of roles with them, including regulatory affairs. In fact, I was the one that permitted both Lost Creek and Shirley Basin, so I'm intimately familiar with our projects, and um, so did that, uh, done a lot of things with the company, did a little bit of lobbying, uh, permitting, uh, help out with a little bit of production, and so uh, I have worn a number of hats in the company and across the industry. So I'm pretty familiar with the company and the projects. But yeah, it's a good time to fill the CEO role and uh, looking forward to it.
1: Okay. And, and so tell me, any, any, well, a couple of things actually. One, any other changes to the board or management uh, at this point? And two, are you going to be plowing your own furrow? Do you need to shake things up and, and form it in your own image or is the path well defined and established?
0: You know, really no other changes in senior management or the the board of directors other than Jeff will be retiring. So no changes there. Uh, We've got a very well-seasoned board. Um, Everyone's been with us for a number of years. In fact, we still have some of the founders with us uh, on the board. So no changes there. You know, as as far as uh, going my own way and reforming the, the company, I really don't see really any big changes coming forward. I think we will probably spend a little more effort and time on research and development. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. That's very near and dear to my heart. I think the industry has been a bit stagnant in that arena. And uh, you know, the industry is not that old when you look at the in situ uh, aspects of it. Uh, In situ really was born about 1963. uh, And since that time, not many changes have been made. Uh, So it's time. Uh, If if we're going to be more competitive uh, across the globe, We've got to do a better job there, not just with your energy, but with other in situ companies around the world. We've got to find better ways, more effective ways, more environmentally friendly ways uh, to manage our business. So, you know, going forward, I don't see a lot of changes, other than perhaps with R and D trying to strengthen our position there.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that now. We we can get on the projects and, most of your shareholders and, and followers will understand your T flagship projects, but. Th- R&D, you're saying we need to to improve, we need to change, we need to work with other ISR producers around the world. To, to, To what end? What are you trying to do? You
0: know, ESG is becoming so important. It always has been, but now it's becoming even more important to the investment community. So I think we owe it to them. We owe it to our shareholders to be able to advance the technology. In situ is a fantastic technology. In fact, most people, when they come out and tour our mine site, uh, we take them out there and they say, Wow, this is not even a mine. What are you talking about? This is not a mine. It's water treatment. Uh, but we literally have deer and antelope out there playing in the well field, uh, sage grouse out there. It's covered in grass. Uh, so when you drive by, it looks like uh, some beehives out there, and those are the well heads. So we've already done a fantastic job in that regard. But there are some criticisms that we need to address and we need to get stronger. Uh, water treatment's one of them. Uh, in our industry, we do use some water, and we in, in the arid West, especially, we need to do a better job of reducing that uh, groundwater restoration. We need to find better ways to go about doing that, so we use less water, so we do a, a better job of restoring that groundwater when we're done, and even the uh, simply the economies of production. Uh, you know, not much has been done to change that in, in the last forty years. I think that's probably because. The market has been so hot, so cold, so hot, so cold. Uh, there's really not been a, a, a great uh, even price for an extended period of time where companies have been able to change their focus from either surviving or ramping up production, You know, change the focus from that to R&D to try to make improvements. And so we need as an industry and as a company to do a better job at that. And your energy has been a leader in that regard. You know, we've done a number of things from the regulatory perspective, but also from the technical perspective, over the years, uh, since we started operations that have allowed us to reduce cost and to to have a better ESG footprint out there at the site. You know, some of the things we've done, uh, ion exchange design, we've dramatically improved that. Uh, Class five water treatment and disposal. We're already recycling a tremendous amount of water out at the site Uh, and a number of other things that we've been the leader on, uh, well abandonment technologies, Uh, We've led the charge in that regard as well. So we're looking forward uh, to continuing R&D. In fact, last week, we did have a press release that uh, called out only two of the projects we're working on. We're working on other projects, but two of the projects we're working on, uh, one of them is water treatment. Even though we've made great strides in water treatment, we believe we can do uh, even better. In fact, we're looking at an additional 90% reduction in water consumption uh, at the site. And uh, we've made great strides in that, and we're in advanced engineering at this point, and so we're really proud of that. So
1: this is an interesting area to kind of dig into, right? Because there's been a big conversation around ESG has been for the last so sort of, twelve months, and some people sit on the sense of oh, it's just rebalancing what went before, and others are going, you mining more broadly needs to improve its image and the way that it works. Okay, and I, I guess you're sitting, we're talking a little bit about over here about you know can we um, can we improve. Efficiencies—that's always good. But can we also, you know, be be, be better? I, I, I don't I don't for all the right, all the right reasons, right? And I and I just wonder when you when you talking about you know um, whether it be water uh, recycling or filtr- filtration, I, I'm I imagine the economies come from the filtration component because the more you can extract, the better. If you can if you're reusing the water, it's kind of like well, that's great. You're using less water, but that's not a big cost center. So, um, where do you sit in the debate between? Uh, what's the phrase people use me? If you go woke, you go broke, right? I think that's thrown at, thrown at, at, into various conversations with us and say, you know, is the ESG thing mutually exclusive from the economics, which I guess is where investors want to sit, or is it are they are they are they able to work hand in hand together for for all the right reasons?
0: No, no they have to work in hand hand in hand. And if they don't, if it doesn't make economic sense, then we drive ourselves out of business. So Uh, If you go woke, you go broke. That's a a great quote. I've not heard that before, uh, but I'll have to use that. Uh, But no, they have to go hand in hand. And you're right with the water treatment. Uh, The cost of the water is not the issue. Uh, The water is essentially free. We're not charged for that. But the improvements in the filtration, that allows us to inject more water, recover more mineralization quicker. So your recovery rates are higher. uh, The cost goes down, uh, less well maintenance. That's all fantastic. In addition to that, the less water we have to dispose of, the less, in, less infrastructure we need on the back end to be able to handle that. And in our case, we use deep wells uh, at Lost Creek. They're about 9,000 feet deep. Those are expensive to put in. They're expensive to maintain and operate. Uh, you know, if you take a look at our SK-1300 that we put out, you're going to see that the cost of a deep well is about $3.2 million. We don't want to put those in. They're expensive. And when you drill a well that deep, you never know exactly what you're going to get either. So you might get a well that'll take five gallons a minute of wastewater, or you might get one that takes 50 gallons a minute. It's a bit of a gamble when you drill that deep. So we don't like that gamble. We like to keep our risk at the surface where they're tangible, where we can control them. So yeah, there's got to be an economic benefit to this. Uh, It can't be just ESG or you do go broke. The other project that we're really working on and we're really proud of is a well casing methodology. Uh, Last fall, we were starting up a drilling program and it readily became apparent getting casing was going to be a challenge. We could get it, but it was going to be slow coming. Uh, There were allocations and it was going to be very expensive. So we sat down and said, look, we've got to find a better way to do this. We can't be so reliant on this one particular type of casing. We've got to find a better way. So we did. Uh, we, we came up with a new casing material, uh, and I'm going to be careful here. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to uh, tip our hand on exactly what we're doing. I know some of our competitors are keenly interested in what we're doing. Uh, we have applied for a patent, a provisional patent, and we'll convert that next year uh, to a full plat- uh, patent. Uh, but this casing technology has a lot of benefits. It, historically, in our industry, we have used PVC uh, as the casing. This is a different material, but virtually in every respect, it's equal to or better than the PVC. So it's going to give us tremendous cost savings uh, for injection wells. We can't use it for production wells due to some technical limitations, but we can use it for our, our injection wells, which represents over 60% of our wells are injection wells. And the real benefit here is Currently, when we install a well, it takes a drill rig about 3.5 days of their time. By the time they drill it, un- ream it, case it, uh, cement it, do all of that, we're looking at three and a half days of rig time. But with this new methodology, we're looking at about five hours, maybe six hours of rig time to be able to put a well in. That's an incredible savings, uh, cost savings. And you know, going back to ESG has tremendous benefits from the ESG perspective as well, because You don't have near the air emissions, uh, emissions. you don't have the noise, you don't have the water trucks running back and forth, Um, smaller mud pits. There's just so many benefits here uh, to moving toward this technology. And and I have to be careful to say, we haven't proven this out yet. On paper, it looks fantastic, but we have to prove it in the field. So right now, we are going through permitting with the state of Wyoming. uh, Once that's done, and we believe it'll be done in short order, then we're going to go out and test it in the field. And you know, R&D by its very nature is challenging and the outcome is never certain, but we're optimistic we're going to be able to do something beneficial here uh, for the sake of ESG, but also so we're not so reliant on dr- uh, getting so many drill rigs and the cost associated with the, the casing and the limitations of supply. So uh, we're excited about R&D. I think we've been a leader in the past. We're going to try to continue to lead the pack for the sake of ESG, but as you said, there's got to be a, a financial benefit involved as well to try to drive down the cost. We we're not going to sit on our laurels and wait for the price to come to us. We're going to try to lower our price as quickly as we possibly can.
1: Well, with with the C with one the cash cost of sixteen thirty four, you're you're already quite quite low. But but I kind of like the striving to be better economically, right? I I think that's really really important because it shows in, in intent. Um. And I want to come back to economics in a bit, but I, I feel for people who are perhaps new to this story that we're maybe introducing here, we better just talk about the, the 2 projects, uh, Lost Creek and, and Shirley Basin, and just give us broad, broad um, uh, economics on, on, on each because I'm more interested in the business model about what you do there plus with the inventory, et cetera. So when, give, give us the Lost Creek, Shirley Basin broad numbers first.
0: Yeah, sure. We've got 2 flagship properties. The first is Lost Creek. Uh, That's been in production now for a little over eight years. It's been a fantastic producer. In fact, our recovery rates on that mine have been about 90%. Uh, That's fantastic for our industry. So we're really proud of that. And I think that's a reflection of the quality of our our crew, uh, but also the quality of the deposit. Uh, The resource there, uh, the measured and indicated, we've got a little over 11 million pounds. uh, And on the inferred, we have 6.6 million pounds. And that gives us about a 14 year additional mine life and above and beyond uh, what we've seen so far. So it's permitted, it's built out, it's operating today. That's really important, I I'm wanna call that out. Our staff today is out there making pounds. Now we have allowed it to reduce to a fairly low flow rate, uh, just in recognition of market conditions. So we've not been ramping up production there. However, uh, as I alluded to earlier, In the fall of last year, we said, look, the price of uranium is improving. Uh, We need to be more ready to go into production. So we started a a drilling and construction program at Lost Creek, and that's ongoing. Uh, We expect the drilling and well installation in Header House 2-4 to be complete next month. And then we're gonna be working on the Header House and that'll be done in the summertime and we'll be ready to ramp that up and pull the trigger. Really importantly there, before I, I switch gears over to Shirley Basin, we have recognized the, the impact of inflation. We've recognized the impact of supply and, uh, of uh, materials and the shortages, and the delays. So we've instituted a program where we are keeping tabs on cost and also the timing of getting those materials in. And so we have got everything we need for 2-4 uh, ordered and on the, either ordered or on the ground. Same for the next header house, 2-5. Everything is ordered for that house. Even going out to the next header house, header house 26, we have a a short list of long lead items. We've already gone ahead and ordered those. Those typically are the electrical things like MCCs, uh, transformers that are so far out, uh, but we've got them ordered. We don't want to be behind when it does come time to construct that. So that program is up and running. Uh, In addition to what's permitted at Lost Creek, we are working on additional areas to go out and mine at Lost Creek East and KM. And so the permitting there is well advanced. We have two of the three major permits we need to be able to expand the footprint of that mine. But switching gears over to Shirley Basin, uh, we're, we're really happy with Shirley Basin. Its permitting is complete. We have all three of the required necessary major permits in place uh, to be able to begin construction. It's got 8.8 million pounds of measured and indicated resource, really nice grade, greater than 0.2. And so we believe it's going to be a very good producer. In fact, it is a historic in-situ mine. Uh, We believe it was probably the first commercial in-situ mine in the U.S. uh, starting back in 1963. And uh, they produced well over a million pounds with in-situ technology. So we're excited to bring the technology back to where it was born. It is a brownfield project that actually helps us reduce costs. The roads are there, the power lines are there, We even have a couple of nice buildings out there uh, and it's a really shallow deposit that's completely drilled out. We don't need to do any exploration or delineation. So all those factors, it actually drives the cost down below what we're going to experience at Lost Creek because of all of those facets. So we'll likely construct it as a satellite facility, even though the permit allows us to build it out as a full plant. Uh, We'll probably just do a satellite facility because it's so close to Lost Creek that we'll be able to just load resin uh, with uranium and then truck it over to Lost Creek for production. And that way we don't have to build out the back end of the plant. So to get Lost Creek, switching gears back to Lost Creek, to get it up and running, we're looking at between six and nine months to get it up to a million pound a year run rate. Shirley Basin, since we need to build it out, we're looking at about 15 to 18 months to build it out to get up to a million pound a year run rate. So two great uh, projects, both are proven in situ producers. Lost Creek has produced over 2.7 million pounds with in situ. Shirley Basin has produced tens of millions of pounds conventional and over a million pounds with in situ. So they're both proven producers and we've got a great crew, tremendous experience. We've been able to keep those uh, retained. So when we do ramp up, it should be a relatively easy process.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I remember speaking with Jeff previously about, you know, I'm going to let some people go, but retaining the, the more experienced ones, uh, for, for this moment in time when, when things start to ramp up. But so Lost Creek has been sort of ticking along because it's harder to kind of start up ISR projects if they if they stop. So that, that's kind of ticking along. Just to, just on, I get the six to nine month time frame, but again, it was indicated previously about 14 million bucks to kind of get up to optimum production of a million pounds on that. Is, that. is that still the case or given your comments about inflation, etc.,
0: cetera, is that number changed? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of give and take with inflation, but also you've got to mix that with the expenditure we've already made. So we're looking now at about thirteen million dollars to be able to ramp up Lost Creek.
1: Thirteen additional million dollars. Got it. Okay. Um, so I want to go back to some of the other quotes because I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued about how the market's moved and evolved, even in, in the space of a year, right? So Jeff is saying, do you know what? Cameco have said 60, 60 bucks, uh, uranium is a good enough for me. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for me. However, we, we're, um, we can make a go of it at 50. So we're, we're at and beyond those numbers now. Um, you are, I know, have, started the ball rolling, but has your perception of what you want to get, what you need to achieve changed given inflation, given where you think it may go, given all of the other factors, including Section 232s and US Uranium reserves and and, and so forth, and, and all how those conversations have also, What's the number look like today for you?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Jeff was right a year ago, that, that's spot on, but inflation is real. we We see it since we are an operating mine, we know exactly to the penny what everything costs, You know, pumps, electrical wiring, uh, the sensors, uh, monitors, we, we, we know to the penny. And uh, the cost is real. Uh, one of the biggest ones that we're concerned about is the price of oil. In the in-situ industry, we use a lot of plastics, HDPE and PVC. Uh, also the drill rigs are burning uh, diesel. And so we are seeing a real impact from the price of, of oil. And gas, and that impact on us. So, yeah, that price has gone up. Uh, are we in the money today? I think uh, the the spot price is about fifty three dollars. Long term is about fifty. Uh, so, no, we're not. We're not quite there because of inflation. Uh, you know, that's not a number we we're going to divulge precisely where it is uh, where we're going to ramp up. But we're close. We're getting there. Um, and I should comment too. The spot price, you know, it's been as high as, what, 65 here in the last few weeks, and it's retreated from that. And uh, I have shareholders and other people saying, John, why aren't you ramping up production? Uh, well, it's not stable. <laughs> and that's, that's what I point out. And, you know, the price has declined remarkably in the last few days. I think it's about to find a new bottom. Uh, but selling into the, ramping up and sinking capital into a mine with the goal of selling into the spot is a dangerous game. I'm not saying we would never do it, but we've got to see higher prices and we've got to see some long-term stability in that spot price before we would be willing to pull that trigger. Historically, we've only sold into the long-term market. And then really that's our goal going forward. We want to sign long-term contracts with uh, preferably with domestic utilities. That gives us stability. It gives us a reason to be able to sink that capital into the mine and ramp up production. So really that's the direction we're headed. one of my big goals for this year is to be able to get long-term contracts with utilities and we're in, in discussions with them uh, quite frequently, uh, testing the market and seeing what we can get signed up uh, for long-term contracts.
1: Right. Uh, hopefully, with a 6 or, or more in front of it, right. and if I, if I look at your share chart, it's kind of like a lot of uh, Uranium Junior share charts, where Spurt or spot physical Uranium Trust took off in, in, in August, September last year, you went on a run as well. When they stopped buying, you came down as well. When they started again a month or so ago, you went up again. Now they've stopped in the last 3-weeks, you've gone down again. That's a fairly familiar chart if, if you're a Uranium investor at the moment. But it, it, it just, it's just reflective of one aspect of the market, some A group taking pounds out of the market. The the more important group in the mix there is the kind of utilities who right. who obviously need to make need to make their play um on this and they're gonna choose the timing as they have been doing for the last three three, four years. Um and they're gonna not not share that with the world, not going to share the strategy with the world. So are you, are, you, are you in conversations? Have you been in conversations? If you haven't, what's your expectation of how this has played out? We've seen a few RFPs come to the market, um, if, you know, a few of them signed as well, but it, it, it needs something more than, than Sput being active or inactive each week. So what's it going to take?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think you're pointing out an issue here, especially from the investment community. I think there's a, a real misperception that uh, spot price is the market and it's really not. It's only a very small percentage of the overall market. By far and away, the larger market is uh, the uh, long-term contracting. So uh, hopefully uh, investors who are new to this uh, industry uh, will take that to heart, but it does add a lot of volatility. You know, I guess maybe the advantage of, of SPUT, uh, the Spot Physical Uranium Trust is they are mopping up a lot of inventory and uh, taking that uh, off the table. So I think that is beginning to have an impact on the long-term price. That long-term price, it tends to lag behind the spot. and uh, But we're seeing it start to catch up slowly, uh, I think partly because of SPROT, but also because of the geopolitics. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how things go forward. I think uh, SPROT will begin to raise funds again at some point here and be back in the market, and we're likely to see it uh, continued volatility, which is unfortunately kind of natural for our industry is a lot of volatility.
1: If I look, and and I don't necessarily want to go down that track too much, you'll have talked about it in every single interview, I I suspect, but here's the thing which is interesting interesting to me is you're a US producer. Obviously, um, your company was one of the two uh, initiators of the Section 232 and Jeff talked very sort of aggressive, antagonistic type of language about what could be coming from the East. Uh, turns out, if he was here, he'd be going, I told you so. Right, yeah, that happened. Yeah. I called it, and 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 it has happened, and it will dramatically change the the the, the route which a lot of this, um, you know, three hundred eight or uf six or enrich uranium flows. Um, I suspect a lot of the Russian stuff is now going to flow a little bit east, and and you, as a U.S. producer, will be a beneficiary of what the U.S. is going to have to do now in terms of securing whether it be U.S. Um, uh, you're in reserve or just for the utilities' regular buying. So, how do you take advantage of this situation? Does it help you in any way? Does it give you access to capital, um, North American capital, where you perhaps w- wouldn't have been before? How do you insert yourself into that eco- ecosystem?
0: Right. Yeah. You know, geopolitically, it's interesting times. Um, so, I think the way we insert ourselves into that is we have to be ready for production. We have to prove ourselves to the utility customers that we, we stand ready, we can ramp up quickly and that we are reliable. And so we're making steps to, to do that, to, to prove ourselves. I think we already have proven ourselves uh, to a large degree, but we have to continue to build that uh, confidence with our potential customer base. Uh, so they say, hey, look, these guys are the go-to. You know, the ability to backfill any supply disruption from Russia or especially if that trickles into Kazakhstan and the former Soviet states, it's very limited globally. Um, you know, you could point to Canada and say, yeah, they, they, uh, they're a prolific producer. They are. Uh, they, Cameco's got a couple of great minds up there. But beyond that, to, to ramp up beyond that, who's next? I mean, next gen, well, five to 10 years out for them uh, to be able to ramp up. So we can't really call on them. Australia is somewhat of a similar situation. Uh, You've got, you know, the the big uranium mine over there uh, that uh, it's in production. um, Olympic uh, Dam. uh, Olympic Dam, thank you. Uh, But you know, that's not a a uranium mine, that's a a gold and iron mine, and they're not gonna ramp up production uh, just to get more uranium. So the the production from there is pretty well fixed. You've got other operating mines there, but they have a limited capacity to ramp up and produce any more. And you start looking at near producers and you look at BOSS, okay, that's one, uh, but that's not that big of a mine and uh, they have some technical matters that they're going to need to prove and overcome. So, and then you look maybe at Africa and what are the opportunities there, but then you have to realize a lot of those mines are owned or controlled by China. You know, a lot of that material could flow east, uh, not to the Western world. So, uh, you know, we're in a bit of a precarious position right now with regard to global supply. Uh, with regard to uh, Uranium mining, conversion and enrichment, all 3 segments of the fuel chain. So We just have to prove ourselves as your your domestic Uranium miner, look, we're in a secure jurisdiction, we're permitted, we're proven, and we have to just keep uh, singing that line uh, and letting our utility customers know we stand ready uh, to backfill that supply gap uh, as it uh, develops.
1: Right. I'd I'd agree with you on on all of that. I think Australia's got its own own set of challenges. it really, really does. But what, what, what has happened, what we have seen with one of the Australian companies, um, Deep Yellow, John Sharp, ex Paladin, uh, gonna made an acquisition, right? That's to kind of, you know, help give them optionality because well, I've been t- telling the market for a while, that he's going to do it. So he's finally done it. But if I look at you, you know, even if you get both your projects up and running, it's two million pounds, right? It's, 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 It's okay. I mean, why? Okay. You're an established management team who have produced pounds before. You continue to produce uranium, um, or or bit at lower amounts on, on Lost Creek. But how do you kind of up the ante here? Because you're kind of limited in a way in terms of what, what the potential is. You've talked in the past about M&A. I've seen some of your other interviews. I've been listening to Jeff. Very selective. We've got to be careful about how we do this because there's a lot of rubbish out there. Um, is that part of the management conversation or the boardroom discussion still, or are you just very conscious about, let's just get up and running, do what we do, and we'll, we'll just stay focused on that?
0: Yeah, so m and is always a part of the, the discussion. Uh, I think in any commodity, uh, especially in the juniors, m is always on the table. Um, I think uh, growing up in this industry, one of the things that really shocked me when I entered the the executive world is simply the amount of M&A discussion and due diligence that's always ongoing. Uh, I think uh, the viewers would be shocked at what's going on behind the scenes, not just with us, but with every company in, in the commodity sector. Uh, so it's not unusual. M&A is a part of the discussion. It's ongoing all of the time. Uh, but, you know, like Jeff, I feel the same way. There is a lot of rubbish, rubbish out there. Uh, if we're going to do m with our company, we would really prefer that it be with somebody that looks like us. Uh, with a proven producer, with quality assets, uh, and even if they aren't a producer, uh, quality enough asset that they can put it into production at some reasonable time frame and at a reasonable cost. We've never been much on marketing and uh, touting blue, uh, blue sky and saying, you know, uh, you know, 10 years from now, we can do something. Our story has always been, yeah, we're a little bit small on the smaller side, but we are a very quality set of assets Uh, they're proven producers and at a very low cost. So if we're going to go out and get married, we want it to be somebody that looks a lot like us. There's got to be a synergy there. There's got to be a reason to merge. Merging to get larger is, it's a reason, but it's not always the best reason. Uh, So we're looking for synergies. It's got to be in a reasonable, safe jurisdiction. Uh, We've got to be able to share a management team. So there's got to be a cost savings. There's got to be a technology benefit. There's got to be a good reason. Other than just getting bigger. So, I guess I'll leave it at that, but we're very picky.
1: No, I, I understand that. And what I'm wondering is, you know, looking around sort of North, North America, we'll include Canada in there, okay? Um, you're right, you've kind of got next gen, huge, uh, but five, 10 years away from maybe getting into production because of, you know, issues around licensing in, in Canada can be very difficult for uranium companies. Well understood. You've kind of got your. Um You actually, you mentioned right, you know you kind of got your African place players, African developers. Perhaps you do have the licenses and permits that they they, they require, but lo- lower grade stuff, and it's it's not typically ISR. Is I just wonder where where you look for this this perfect marriage? Because I'm, when I look at the North American other North American players, it, it it's it's tough in terms of proven producers. Uh, may, may, maybe you know, you're the management team that can take over an asset and maybe make it work, but a lot of companies have achieved a, a quite meaningful valuation and feels like a lot of backfilling coming in and the cost to you could be quite expensive. So is, is it a reality or um, that, that you could get a deal done in North America or would you have to look further afield, whether it be wherever that may be in the world?
0: Well, you know, you've hit on uh, something that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, Right now, valuations are uh, maybe out of whack. Uh, There are some exploration projects and development, no, maybe not even development, just exploration projects out there, companies that their valuations are just off the charts. And um, it's not reasonable for us at this point to uh, look at M&A with them. It just wouldn't be uh, fair to our shareholders without some massive discount. And so it's difficult Uh, You know, you not only look at jurisdictions and uh, market capitalization, but you look at technologies, too. Our strength is in in situ. Um, Yes, we know the uranium space incredibly well, but our strength from a technology perspective is in situ. So should we be looking at conventional projects? Yeah, we we should. And we do from time to time. Uh, But is that really where our strength lies? Um, Perhaps we could get there. Uh, but if it, it's probably not at the top of our list. So it's a difficult conversation. It's a difficult topic because there are so few companies and projects that really satisfy the, kind of the criteria I've laid out for M&A. Uh, but having said that, we, we keep our ear to the ground and we, we watch and we listen and uh, we know the industry really well. And as opportunities come up, uh, we'll pursue them.
1: Oh, here's, here's a different question. Same question, but different way, right? Take the money out of it. Take the valuations out of it. How many projects in North America do you think technically work?
0: Oh, shoot. It's a, it's a pretty minimal list. I mean, if, if you take the economics out of it, yeah, there are a number of projects that work. Oh, take the value out of it,
1: not the economics. Take, take the valuations okay. out of it, yeah. but they yeah, it, work it's economically, right? It's a small right? list. It's,
0: it's a small list. Is it a handful? It's a handful. Uh, half a dozen or so that work. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a really small list. Uh, there's a lot of technical risk out there. Uh, there are a lot of wannabe miners who have fantastic technical teams, great management, uh, but they've not proven themselves yet. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a very, very small list in North America. And I would say the same thing is true probably in Australia. It's a pretty small list uh, of things, of projects that we think uh, have good technical merit uh, that we would consider for MA.
1: Yeah. Yeah. essentially, interesting. I think that's, that's probably, probably about right. Um, however, the valuations are, are they, they, well, there's an interesting thing. It's just your view. You've, you've been around the block. Uh, you know, you know, you know, you, you know what, what things, the realities of, of how things work. Um, and you've been involved in lots of aspects of, of, of the company. So if, if I'm looking at, if you're looking at the market now, this uranium market now, there's a lot of, um, fervor and excitement about the potential of uranium as, as there should be. Um, do you, and but, and it's taken, away, and it's been thus for the last three years or so, people are getting very, very excited about. It. What do you think people looking in must be thinking, um, about this, about the uranium market at the moment? And, and what do you think they should be paying attention to? Because forget the, BS and the promotion, and they, you know, b- b- you know, buy, buy today. Um, what should they be looking at? What's important and what's not?
0: Well, uh, let me start with an economics test. Uh, when I look at companies for M and A, one of the very first questions that I ask is: the projects that this company has were they in production in the last cycle, 2007, when the price was so high? And if not, why not? If they couldn't be in production, then why should I think that they are worth looking at now? So I would encourage people out there that are new to this space, look at the history of the projects and were they able to produce or not. You mean like and at, at all, all or
1: at certain numbers? I mean, I, I think I've heard companies who said we produced, I don't know, £100,000. Well, Is be that meaningful. good enough?
0: It's got to be meaningful because there are, there's a whole list of companies out there that attempted to go into production and they produced you know, hundreds of pounds or a few thousands of pounds, it's irrelevant. They need to show that they can produce hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, in, a, in a good market. And if they can't make that demonstration, then I'm not saying you shouldn't invest. I'm just saying that you should do a, a deeper dive and understand why. And can management explain that adequately before you invest today? But more broadly, to answer your question a little more fully uh, I think right now investors are looking at the geopolitical situation that's out there, as they should. Uh, It is meaningful, it's a a price driver. Uh, The implications to our industry could be massive uh, and it could uh, really drive the price for many years to come. But setting that aside, because that's kind of it could be more near-term and it's it's there's a lot of volatility there. I think what's maybe more important for the long-term investor to look at is the green energy aspect of nuclear. Uh, We can't ignore that. There's going to be a lot of volatility up front. But for that long-term investor, where is the price going to go? And I think if you take a look around the world where uh, countries are are looking to get their energy from, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the gas shortage that comes from that, a lot of countries around the world were really beginning to move toward nuclear because people were beginning to understand if you're going to get to carbon neutral, Nuclear has to be a part of the story. There's no other way to really get there. And so countries like South Korea, they're jumping back into nuclear in a big way. France, and Macron was just reelected. He's uh, saying, we're gonna go uh, forward with nuclear. We're gonna keep the existing plants open as much as we can, and we're gonna build a bunch more. China, holy cow, China is the gorilla in the room. They've said they're going to build 150 reactors in the next 15 years. Uh, just two weeks ago, they said they're on track to accomplish that. Uh, those are crazy numbers. That's going to have a real impact on the uranium supply and demand for many decades to come. So for the investor, yeah, look at the geopolitics. There's going to be a lot of volatility associated with that, most likely in the coming weeks, months, even a year or two. But in the longer term be very aware of the impact of the decarbonization of the global economy and what that means for supply-demand. I think the long-term view on nuclear is very bright. And I think it's a great reason to invest, especially in the long term.
1: No, I'd, I'd agree with you. Like we, we, we've been running a uranium show weekly for almost three years now. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to see the narrative change over that time. And you've recently had that kind of whole EU taxonomy, including nuclear and gas as a, as, as a green energy solution. And I think, as you say, even before Russia Ukraine happened, there was a steady increase in energy prices, which has caused politicians to actually pay attention to you know ha- the, 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 the energy mix. So it's, it's been fascinating and if anyone wants to go and see that, we talk weekly at CruxInvestor.com. Uh, you're welcome to pop along there. Um, well, like John, I'm sort of conscious of taking up your time. It was great to catch up on your Energy and see where you guys are at and just sort of moving things along. I know, I know you, you, you talked about sort of just um, you know allocating capital and, and trying to move things along and start start building et cetera, getting yourself ready, but it's not full full throttle yet is that, is, is that right
0: that's correct yeah, right. We're waiting for a stronger market signal and, and what what is that contracting.
1: signal what, contracting uh, with contracting. a si- with a six at the beginning contracting no number <laughs> given, no number <laughs> given. <laughs> Well, like, um, stay in touch and uh, let us know how you get on. Obviously, it's a fascinating marketplace. Uh, you know, geopolitics is, is tr- truly astounding, and so sort of understanding how that all fits together, it gives some sense of timing, gives you a degree of comfort and confidence when investing in, in here. Um, so, like, John, appreciate your time. We'll see you soon.
0: Great to spend time with you. Have a good day.